Well, you're back to another episode of the Zealous Podcast. I'm your host, Rocky Snyder, and you can follow us on Instagram, Rocky underscore Snyder. While you're at it, click the subscribe button. Make sure you don't miss out on our weekly episodes and tell some friends. Let's grow this into what it can be. This week, Boo Schexnader is joining me. He has been with LSU track and field for many, many years. He's gone away and done some work internationally with professional track and field athletes. And when it comes to the basic fundamentals of all athleticism, you don't get much deeper than track and field. So we're going to talk about speed work. We're going to talk about strength, a whole bunch of different things when it comes to program design because he creates masterpieces when it comes to program design. Hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Thanks for giving it a listen. Okay, so how about we start with the superhero origin story, so to speak? Like, how, how was it that you came to be in this industry, in this field to begin with? What inspired you to not only become a coach, but to, to really follow this, this whole path of, of uh, track and field and conditioning and speed work and so on? Well, I, I, I tell young coaches I mentor all the time, you, you never know what's going to happen if you work hard and just do things. And to be honest with you, this was not a career path I chose. It kind of chose me. You know, when I got started, I was a high school coach. I was coaching football, track and field. And I thought I would never do anything else. I got my master's degree uh, in administration and supervision because I thought if I ever became a principal, I could get a raise. And that's about all I ever aspired to do. But, you know, if you work hard and coach hard and have some success, people look at what you're doing. And that brought on opportunities. And then I was at the collegiate level and that brought on opportunities. And I was having a lot of success at the collegiate level uh, with track and field. I'd given up football by that time. I was actually much more of a football person than a track person when I first got started. Sometimes I regret that, to be honest with you, but uh, sometimes I'm very happy about it. But um, I started doing a lot of NFL combine prep. I wasn't making a ton of money. And there at LSU, there were a lot of guys who were going to, you know, professional football. So I started doing combine prep with them. And I guess that was kind of my break into the more strength and conditioning performance side of things, you know. And then, of course, when I left LSU the first time, uh, that's when I was pretty much all I was doing was performance-based consulting work with different professional teams, some athletes, and uh, some national, some other countries, and things of that nature. So, honestly, it just kept finding me. And uh, I learned a lesson: is that when you leave a place, sometimes you'd be surprised how many people want you to do things. You know, when I left LSU, I. Uh, I, I always tell this to young coaches when they're contemplating leaving a job. But when I left LSU, I had a job in line running a performance center and I was semi excited about it, but it was time to do something different. And then the phone just went crazy with people calling me to do this, do that, come visit us, come work with us and so forth. And that just kind of led into a nice consulting type of business that I enjoy to this day. So, as seasoned professionals, shall we say, who have been coaching for many years, we begin to pick up uh, tools along the way and we begin to be um, somewhat uh, influenced by others in the field, whether they are colleagues or mentors and so on. What, what kind of tools did you pick up? What mentors did you acquire or what, what influenced you along your whole coaching career? 
Well, there are so many, I, you know, I hate to mention them because I don't want to leave anybody out, you know, because I had so many good influences in track and field. I was very fortunate, two, two fortunate things in my career. When I, the first one was that when I was coaching high school in Louisiana, uh, uh, Dan Path came to LSU and Dan uh, kind of took me under his wing and was kind of a mentor to me in my formative years. And not only did Dan teach me a lot, and I always give credit to just about everything I've accomplished to him, but not only did he teach me a lot, but I was at a point where uh, in my career where I was starting to see things a little differently than, uh, than, than maybe other coaches were seeing them, or I was starting to see things a little bit, uh, I guess you would say outside the boundaries of common coaching culture. And I was kind of nervous about that because I'm young and I'm not really trusting myself that much. And he was the person that told me, no, 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 you're seeing it clearly. You need to trust your instincts. And if your instincts kind of take you away from what is commonly uh, regarded in the coaching culture, you need to, and you have good science behind it, you need to, to trust that. So not only did he teach me a lot, but he kind of helped me develop a pioneer spirit to kind of do my own thing and trust my own instincts, you know. And then the other thing that was very helpful to me was uh, I got involved in coaching education. You know, track and field has a very, uh, has a rigorous formal education program associated with USA track and field. Later on, I started and became associated with a different program. But a big part of that was curriculum development. And when I was involved in those curriculum development meetings, I was around brilliant people all the time. Some of them were coaches, some of them were scientists, uh, some of them were just almost philosophical geniuses, so to speak. So I was able to absorb a lot from a lot of people at a young age. And I think that gave me a big foot up in my, uh, in my career. So I think those are the two most developed, most, uh, that's the word I'm looking for, the most influential um, developmental experiences that I had at a, as a young coach. What about like those, those major light bulb moments where you're going along and whether it's along the conventional path or you're, you're exploring some si something outside those boundaries, what, can you recall some of those big uh, levels of awareness that, that came across your, your awareness? Yeah, uh, the first one I think I've already mentioned, when, like when Dan said, no, don't be afraid to break from the common coaching culture. You know, that was a big thing. You know, when I started to like trust myself and say, well, nobody's talking about this, but I'm looking at it and I think it's important. Well, that was that was the first one, you know, and uh, and this sounds extremely conceited, but to, to realize that you have a gift of seeing something that other people might not see but to still go forward and trust your instinct because I was never a conceited person or an overly confident person. Nobody would ever have described me as brash or outgoing or any. So that was a big thing for me was to, to, to learn to trust myself was, was, was a major step because I was, I was an introvert. I was, I was, was shy, you know, and, and I never thought I was really special in any way. So that was a, a leap of faith for me. And then when I really started understanding the, the coaching materials. You know, I wrote the curriculum and we had specificity and overload principle and all those types of things and so forth. And you talk about them all the time, but do you really do them, you know? And when I really started taking those basic philosophies and those basic coaching premises and understanding them at a deeper level, that was a big thing. You know, I had heard specificity forever. And for years, I thought specificity meant that whatever you did in training had to look like what the event was going to look like or what the 
look like. And I, I get it. And, and, but then when I started to realize that specificity took many forms, meaning that the exercise you're doing might not look like the event or the sport at all, but it's specific as far as the way that it affects the tissues or it's specific as far as the way it affects uh, biochemistry, you know, the, 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 the bloodstream or whatever. And I, when I started to have a deeper understanding of specificity, that was a big help as well, you know? And then finally, uh, another aha moment, I had always been a quality-based coach and I credit that for a lot of my success, but there came a time in my career when I started doing a lot of rehabs and I didn't have a rehab background. So all of a sudden I had to figure this stuff out. You know, I had, I'll never forget. It was the first like time I ever did an ACL rehab. A uh, guy knocks on my door, a guy who I had coached years and years and years ago as a high school athlete knocks on my door, says, I need you to do my son's ACL rehab. He was doing good, but now he's, it's stalled out. And I told him, I says, I, I don't, I don't really do that. And he says, well, coach, you're going to do this one. You know, so all of a sudden I got one I got to do and I didn't have a rehab background. So rather than drawing on rehab uh, resources, I kind of drew more on what I had success with as a coach of able-bodied, healthy people and tried to figure it out. And I was very successful in that regard. And now I'm kind of regarded as somewhat of a outside the box expert in that field. But again, what that did for me was not make me better at rehab. I mean, because I think that may have come anyway, but what it did for me was that it underlined the idea of quality-based training, you know, because when you have an injured athlete and obviously their work capacities are limited because of the injury, then you have to be quality-based. And the success I had in rehab, I kind of brought back to my coaching of able-bodied, uh, healthy athletes, and it just underlined uh, the quality-based training philosophy I have, and maybe even help me to take it to another level, which was very helpful. I can only imagine. I mean, boy, there's there's so many questions I have right now from, from what you just uh, put forth. Oh, one being the observation of human motion. There comes a time, and maybe it's that, you know, 10,000 hour kind of uh, thought <laughs> that after you watch it for so many hours, so many different movements, you, you begin to see the body in a different way. And, and for myself personally, this is this only occurred uh, just a couple of years ago at the onset of, of COVID because I was forced to go online and I had to really use my observation skills in two dimensional space on a person that's that's on my laptop. And I got to say, Boo, it's just, it upped my game in, in, in trying to be as humble as possible. But I began seeing the body move in ways that my eyes were starting to pick up that, that I don't know if that would have happened elsewise. But did, did you find the same thing? Like, was there a, a landmark or was there a moment or a milestone where you there was something that switched when you started watching the body where it, it, maybe some question marks came up and going, did, did I just see that? Am, am I sure? You know, what was your experience with that? My, my, I understand exactly what you're saying. And, but for me, it was more of an ongoing process. Uh -huh. The fact that I was working with athletes on a regular basis and I would see things in an athlete, then I'd see similar things in another athlete. And it would just spur me to think like what, this doesn't look right. There's something to it. I need, instead of moving on, I, I need to find a way to explain what's going on here. 
So it, to me, it became a problem solving process. And to this day, I always tell young coach that, you know, your problems are your greatest blessing in coaching, you know, because ultimately they're what make you stronger. You know, coaching is a problem solving by nature. So observing things. And, and once you see it the second time, then you know, it's a syndrome. It's not a, it's not a one-time occurrence. It's not a freak thing. And you got to figure it out. You know, if you don't figure it out, well, then you have left a hole in your coaching game. So to make a long story short, when I started understanding, for example, sprinting was not a two-dimensional thing. It was a three-dimensional thing and understanding the rotational forces involved in sprinting, for example, you know, when I started looking at things that you typically think of as rotational, but looking at the linear components that were involved. And then of course, when I started understanding the internal biomechanics, as well as I understood the external biomechanics, then that was like the, the crowning gem. So now I'm pretty good at looking at people and assessing right off the bat what's working, what's not, what's just like you are. And, uh, but I, I would just say that it wasn't like a light switch that came on. It was a long, ongoing, sometimes tedious process for me. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. For, for... It just felt like a, a snowflake had fallen and the avalanche began, you know? It was an accumulation uh -huh. over time, but there was this point where it just was like everything opened up. And I can see, you know, you 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 describe that brilliantly because you can apply those observational skills on the full spectrum of athletic performance into the rehab spectrum and getting them back into return to play and then at the top elite level i mean we're just if you understand how the body moves and like you say you get that intrinsic biomechanic understanding and and realizing three-dimensionality of, of joint motion then boy so many things become possible and and so many things become evident for everything that you see. Now you mentioned rotation. And so I would love to talk about that because you, you're, I won't say your specialty, but you've been working with track and field athletes. And of course we got the throwers where there's rotational power. You think of the discus, the, the hammer, the shot put and all those, even of course the javelin, there's tremendous rotation to throw something straight ahead. But we're, when it comes to the sprinting and, and the running athletes, and for that, that matter, the jumping, so much of their power comes from rotation. How do you harness that? Well, I, I, when I look at rotational power or the development of rotational power, I, I look at speed and power kind of as a global thing. You know, my philosophical understanding is that uh, speed and power basically come from the nervous system. And a person who is powerful and fast has a nervous system that's better at activating muscle tissue than the average person, you know, whether it be through recruitment, rate coding, or synchronization, or whatever the case may be. So I would be untrue to my philosophy if I felt that rotational power was a special tool, was a special quality in and of itself. I think that rotational strength or rotational power is kind of a subcategory of that. So in, in short, what I'm saying is if you're not a powerful person, I don't think you're capable of being powerful in a rotational sense. So I, I see that as a subset type of relationship. So when I look at rotational skill, I, I should say rotational power, uh, what I look at is, first of all, raising the ceiling of an athlete's speed and power levels, whatever you have to do, whether it be in a rotational sense or in a linear sense. And in most cases, rotational skills are more complicated from a motor standpoint, you know? And, mm -hmm. and, and what, I, what I think, 
I hate to talk about the fault before I talk about the good thing, but I think what happens in a lot of training programs is that they're not successful in developing rotational power to high levels because they do too much rotational power. And what I mean is, is that if you have an athlete who rotational power is a big part of what they do, and you're trying to develop power only in a rotational sense or predominantly in a rotational sense, Generally speaking, the movement patterns associated with rotation are more complicated than those that are involved with linear movements, okay? So if those movement patterns are more complicated, then you're not capable of loading them to as high a level. If the movement patterns are more complicated, then you can't think of, 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 of operating faster with a higher power output in those situations. You know, I always tell people, when you choose your exercises, you can be fancy or fast, but you can't be both. You know, if there are really complicated movement patterns associated with an exercise, then you can't go hard at it. You're always gonna be a little conservative in your approaches. So I think that when you're looking at rotational power, I think some people overdo the rotational side of it. And as a result, they never achieve the power levels that they genuinely do. Now, obviously the rotational side of it is very important, but I think what you're doing with the rotational side is you're taking what you have from a, a global power perspective and making it more functional. And you're also developing skill in that way you know it's kind of the same thing if I'm coaching a baseball pitcher you know if I want to make develop you know put two or three miles per hour on their fastball I'm not thinking in terms of arm exercises I'm thinking in terms of power training you know Olympic lifts and sprinting and those types of things to raise the ceiling and then the remainder of it is skill development as far as the actual pitching mechanics and so forth are concerned so in short I look at it that way and I, I just think that a lot of people make the mistake of being over specific as far as the pattern of movement. It goes back to what I was saying a little earlier. I think that we have to understand that the specificity when you're training global power has to do with neural specificity and tissue specificity just as much as it does the skill side of things. So do you find it important to create programs individualized based on the the athlete and and their their biomechanics their you know this the specific athlete or do you have a, a more general approach and then we'll add specific elements to that individual based on what you see i i have a system and when I take an athlete, I plug them into the system. Now, before, I, I know that sounds cold and cruel in some ways, you know, and sometimes I go to Europe where everybody is really highly into individualization and eyebrows raised. But before, before eyebrows raised, let me explain that the first part of the program, like if you come to me and I've never coached you before, your first general preparation with me is very much evaluative, you know, and then is there individualization? Of course, there's individualization individualization, but I consider individualization as part of the system, meaning that when you have these body types, you train them this way with these subtle differences. When you have other body types, you train them this way with these subtle differences, training age differences and so forth. So, so I, I, I'm an individual, I, I believe in individualization, but I don't like to take it too far. I also think that if you look at an athlete and evaluate them, you come up with a program for just that athlete and you're starting from scratch with every athlete, well, then your experience goes in the trash can 
you know, if you're kind of starting from scratch every time as well. So I like to see how athletes perform in the exercises and the activities that I'm used to used to using and that I am used to using for evaluative purposes to make decisions about that athlete and where you go from there. You know, I know when I took my NSCA test, uh, several of the questions they gave you this you know, here's an athlete's test data, you know, they're, they're, here's a test, you know, and they're good at these three tests and they're bad at these three tests. And I put down, you know, this athlete needs to work on X, Y, Z. But honestly, I put down an answer I don't truly believe in. I, because I believe that you don't take an athlete and work strictly on their weak points, because if you're only working on their weak points, then you never get the neural drive that you need to improve the weak points. The, the neural drive you need comes from the strong points. And to a large extent, I kind of look at a horse pulling a wagon, you know, the wagons, the load, the wagons, the weak points, but the horse has to pull the wagon and the horse's strong points. So I think that it's really hard to develop or improve the, an athlete's weaknesses when you're not also using their strength as that engine to kind of pull them along. And if you were going to ask me what's going on there uh, from a physiological standpoint, I just think that if an athlete is not good at something, you're not going to be able to achieve the rate coding improvements and the rate coding levels you need to truly make improvements if you're only doing the things they're bad at. You see? Yes. Yeah, totally. So, which makes me wonder, uh, brilliant, by the way, uh, love that response. I, I'm just wondering, by when you put together a program, and of course, you're going to say it depends on the athlete. So if we could put that one aside. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, always our cop out in our best statement at the same time. Yeah. But in terms of, of, of um, order of preference, would you, in an entire program, would you begin with the weaknesses in the program and then focus on the strengths or would you go the other way around would you hit the global movements power development strength and so on and then near the end start to clean things up how which which order do you typically go in i like to go in the global movements because i've just found that neural improvements clean up so much stuff you know i've had so many athletes that if you just get them training and you just get the nervous system functioning at a higher level so many of the things just clean up by themselves you know, and get, when they don't, that's when you go into the individualized right, or right, into the, sell, the, the weaknesses. Correct. But seldom is that the case. There is one exception, though. When I'm peaking an athlete for high performance and Olympic uh, sport kind of model, uh, I always go to their strengths. You know, so if, why? Why? Why do you do yeah. that? Well, because I want them in their zone when they're competing in the Olympic Games or the World Championships or whatever they may be, you know. So, for example, pretty much everybody's doing very similar workouts in my track and field training group, you know, the professional track and field athletes I coach. But I have a couple of them who are weight room stars. I have a couple of them who are sprint stars. You know, I'm not talking about their events. I'm talking about their their strengths in the program. So when it comes time to keep them stimulated, uh, moving into the keeping in mind that we're not trying to progress anymore. We're trying to maintain stimulation. The weight room stars, I'll use more Olympic lifting to kind of keep them going and keep them stimulated. Those that are super elastic, I'll use more of a plyometric based program to keep them stimulated. Those that are really good sprint stars, they'll do more sprinting. So I try to, to take things toward their strengths at the end to put them in environments that they feel confident in. And of course, there's a confidence factor associated with that as well, you know, I don't want them dwelling on the bad uh, max out tests that they had in the weight room, you know, at that particular time, I want them dwelling on the fantastic sprint times they've been putting up or whatever the case may be. 
Wow, that's great. I, I hadn't considered that. That's, of course, you you want them to to maintain and and at that level, uh, we're talking about really yeah. some great fine tuning program design. Um, you know, so often, you know, I'm lucky that I started at the high school level, so I got to work with athletes that weren't very good, um, and and I just noticed that sometimes you just start, you know, I get, I get calls all the time and with a video or, or a video attached to an email, my athlete, this is my athlete sprinting. The sprint mechanics are awful and everything's wrong. What do I do? Where do I start? You know, well, the answer is just start. You know, I remember when I was a young coach um, and I can, this was like early nineties when I'm first starting to work with really elite level athletes, I would teach them how to accelerate, man. I'd be out there every single day, like, you know, coaching acceleration and I'm, they run, I coach, they run, I coach. I'm talking a lot. I'm coaching my butt off and whatever. And they get better. They get a lot better. And you see big improvements. Well, a few years later, like I'm not talking nearly as much, but they're improving at the same rate. And that's when I started to realize that all of the things that you're doing, not just the acceleration work, but the, uh, the, um, the, the, the weightlifting you're doing, the mobility training you're doing, the body balancing that comes from body weight exercises, all of those things are coming together to produce a more functional organism who just shows what I call better degrees of going back to your philosophy, movement quality, you know, just better degrees of movement quality. And as a result of that, the acceleration mechanics got better dramatically, even though I wasn't talking much about it anymore. And that's my whole philosophy is you have this organism you're trying to train. You're not trying to teach all this stuff because most of these things are basic movement patterns. You know, on the farm, we'd cut a chicken's head off. It would still run around. You know, <laughs> you know it would still run even though you cut its head off. You know, it's their basic movement patterns, subcortical, you know, that are kind of governed at low levels or whatever. And I'm not saying there's nothing to teaching sprint mechanics. There is, of course, but I just think we overvalue that sometime. And my philosophy is always build the organism to, and in a way that allows it to execute things that should be natural. Well, that's, that's kind of my philosophy. So that coach who has the athlete who does everything wrong, just start, just start, just train. And a lot of times you'll notice that Several of those problems will disappear. Then there'll only be one or two left. And then you can go to work on those one or two. Brilliant. So you, you mentioned you, you work obviously with professional athletes, but professional track and field athletes. And in the U.S., that is not uh, one of the, the mainstream sports. You know, we don't often find it on our, our network sports on the weekends. Occasionally, you know, as we get close to the Olympics, we'll, we'll go up to Oregon and we'll, we'll see the track and field championships and so on, but, uh, or the Olympic trials. But it's a different world in, in Europe. It's a different world internationally. What, what is that like? What, I mean, just what is the culture of professional track and field? And, and are more Americans pursuing that? Or is it just, maybe it's just underground and, and it's not in my world of awareness, but what is that like for American athletes to try and get into professional track and field? It, it actually, um, it's a very healthy system, you know, anytime, you know, that's the one thing about the NCAA, you know, you have all these sports that in spite of what the coaches say, if you examine what goes on in America versus other countries, these sports are all funded at phenomenal levels, you know, <laughs> You know, you know, all of our track coaches in America go around complaining because you only have 12.6 scholarships for a men's track and field team that get 
you know, divvied up and so forth. But if you go over to Europe, there are 0.0 scholarships, you know, for track and field teams. So they're trying to do things with a club system where actually here it's a pretty healthy system. Title IX has helped dramatically with the women. You know, I think it's amazing to look at sport in general and look at our Olympic performances as a nation in, here in America and to see the, the, the transference of how many women are now winning medals. If you look at our total medal count and the percentage of medals being won by women now versus years ago, I mean, it's phenomenal how far we've come. And it's because of Title IX and there are so many more opportunities. In fact, there's so many athletes in the, America, in, in the Olympics that win medals now that are actually trained here in the NCAA system. You know, So in the NCAA system, not only are we often um, developing our own athletes, but we're developing athletes for other countries. And in some ways we're making the sport healthier because if it's a totally American dominated sport, that's not truly interesting either. So actually the mouth of the funnel is pretty good and pretty healthy. You know, if you talk to track coaches, they might not say that because you always want more and you're never totally satisfied. And that's the nature of coaches, but uh, there's a wide funnel and college coaches are like vultures, you know, if, if you got to drop a talent, they're going to be after you, you know, and they're going to find you. And the sport's really healthy, at, uh, in my opinion, at, at this uh, point in time. True, it's not the most televised sport, uh, but at the same time, um, if you go to a meet nowadays, there's energy, you know, there's excitement, you know, there are people who like it. And, and uh, I would consider the sport basically healthy. Well, I also consider it more than a sport in, in itself as is like you mentioned the bedrock of so many other athletic pursuits and competitions. So this brings me to the single sport athlete syndrome that seems to be occurring in our nation where we've got young athletes that are either going all year round in baseball or soccer or basketball and, and they don't break away from that sport. I just, of course, I know you're going to have the answer I'm expecting, but with track and field, wouldn't that just make sense for most athletes to really pursue track and field, whether depending upon their, their, their makeup, whether they're going to be mainly elastic or mainly power or whatever the case may be, wouldn't that make them more of a comprehensive athlete when it comes to the, the other sport that they want to compete in? Absolutely. But I'm not just going to say track and field. I just think that as a young kid, you should play everything you can play, you know, and I, I go around telling them that there's a high school coach not far from me every single year, right after the NFL draft, he'll, he'll he, I don't know where he gets his information, but he sends out a compilation and that, and it was somewhat think like 89% of the people who were drafted in the NFL this year were multi-sport athletes at the high school level and of those other sports uh like track and field was by far the most common like it was like 70 some odd percent of them had participated in some type of track and field or whatever of course i'm a track coach and i see the value there but the thing is is that i think they should play as much as they can you know i love you know i i just I came up as a high school coach and of course I'm dating myself, but I came up in the day where you play football, then you move to basketball, then you move to track and then you kind of, you played baseball in the summer and you played all the sports and you just had so many less problems in that regard. And, but I, the thing I blame for all of this is college tuition costs. You know, I mean, parents are just looking at college tuitions and I mean, sending a kid to college is like buying a 
a, a second house. You know, it, it's just phenomenal what college is costing these days. And, and at some point in time, you know, probably, you know, as a country, we're going to have to examine that model. That's a whole, whole different, you know, uh, conversation. But, uh, you know, if, if I'm a parent and I'm staring down the, down the barrel of a gun of having to pay $250,000, $300,000 for each of my children's education, well, all of a sudden a scholarship is, you know, and then you have people who are kind of not preaching this diversity thing, who are kind of preying upon that, and they set themselves up as single sport gurus and so forth. So I don't, I don't fault anybody. You know, I don't, I don't fault anybody in those situations because economically that's what's, what's happening. But I, in no way do I consider it correct. I, I always leave people with one, you know, when I was at LSU the first time I coached, I think 20 NCAA champions, not one ran summer track, mm. not a one, not a single one ran summer track. And I have nothing against summer track. Don't get me wrong. But what I'm saying is it sure the heck isn't necessary. You know, a lot of them that were internationals, they played cricket, they played soccer, whatever. A lot of the Americans played football, basketball, you know, those other kinds of sports. And I, I just think it's better for an athlete to be rounded and to play lots of things when they're young. And for sure, it assists with the overuse stuff. Certainly. Well, you know, I, I want to circle back around to your, your mentioned the ACL early on in our conversation and, and your first experience with kind of rehabbing an athlete that came to you. These days, now that you've gotten, uh, I would say a considerable amount more experience with ACLs and, and, and for that matter, other sport injuries and returning your athletes to play, I wanna know how, how important do you feel that it's, it is to hunt down the underlying cause, the root problem of, of things like ACL tears or, or any, any sport injuries, do you think it helps address the issue or are you just going, okay, we're going to return you to sport and we're just going to look at your mechanics, clean it up and then get you back in. Do, do you find importance as to like what this person's history is? Why does this occur or recur? Yeah. Most of the time it's related to uh, holes in their athletic development, you know, things that weren't really taught correctly or just, they were never able to experience which kind of underlines the whole diversity thing again, you know, when I'm, when I'm rehabbing an ACL person, an ACL patient, one of the things that we eventually get to is a drop jump series. And one of the exercises that I do is I'll put them up on a box, a plyo box, and uh, they fall off of the box. And when they hit the ground, they have to smoothly go into a squat. And it's amazing at that point in time in the rehab, because that's where you figure out why it happened in the first place, you know, because not only the varus and the valgus that we're kind of used to, but a lot of times when you have these athletes hit the floor, you see a lot of them are hip dominant, you know, they'll bend at the waist, but the knees don't flex, or you'll see the knees flex excessively and the hips don't bend, you know, and, and you know, of course you want that amortization to occur in all three joints, you know, the hip, the knee and the ankle. So in short, it, it's interesting at that point in the rehab, because that's where the light finally gets shined and why this happened in the first place. And that's why most of the time when I do an athlete or rehab an athlete, when they go back, they're typically better uh, skilled than they were before the rehab, because the rehab gives you a chance to repair all of these movement patterns that should have been repaired from the very beginning, you know, and to answer your question about underlying causes, movement quality is one, uh, but every 
every every injury is pretty much a biomechanical jigsaw puzzle that you kind of have to to solve you know like i get consulted a lot on hamstring injuries and things of that nature well the hamstring for example is kind of positioned in a point where it receives forces from above and below and like ankle dysfunction you know and like misplacement of the talus and so forth is implicated in probably 80 90 percent of your hamstring injuries you know because it affects the way the forces are transmitted up you know from the ground up into the leg and so forth so so there's always issues there you know i i you know that was a seminal moment for me too was thomas meyer's anatomy trains book you know i'm sure you're familiar with it and whatever but just ideas that you always kind of had an idea of to see somebody take them and detail them so specifically like he did was really helpful at that particular time when I finally got my hands on that as well. But suffice it to say that there's always an underlying cause. And a lot of times when an athlete re-injures, the injury comes back or whatever, we kind of say, oh, the rehab wasn't right. Well, it wasn't necessarily the rehab being right. It was the fact that you didn't identify the root of the injury. You know, you addressed the, the injury site, but so often the root of the injury is somewhere else. And so I, I always just make it a point in every rehab situation, every injury situation, you have two questions to ask, you know, what are we going to do about this injury? But why did it happen in the first place? And very seldom are is the same answer for both questions. Well, as soon as you put in that one word, why you have taken yourself away from the the protocol of of rehab for a specific uh, issue like there there were for years ACL rehab protocol, which didn't take into consideration why it occurred to begin with, like you say. So as soon as you can put the why in it, then you start to become the, the detective and, and look at trying to solve this problem. Could it have been a head injury that repositioned the skull that created this trickle-down effect all the way down and, and it stopped at the knee? But ultimately, you know, what I got out of what you're just saying, you know, you use depth jumps to see the quality of deceleration, mass and momentum being stopped against that ground force reaction. Are we getting the proper joint mechanics in all three dimensions? And by being an observer and actually being aware of what should happen and then looking to compare to what's actually happening there reveals a tremendous amount. So let's just take this uh, as an example. Like if you have an athlete and they're recovering from ACL and you have them do a depth jump and you find that they are mainly hip dominant and there isn't much flexion at the knee to decelerate force, what do you do? You make them bend their knees. <laughs> yes, it is. You know, I mean, it-, it Oh, that's just brilliant. Yeah, no, I'm serious. I mean, like so many times you think you gotta be deep and dark and scientific or whatever, but they bends his hips too much and doesn't bend their knees enough, make them bend their knees, you know? And if they can't bend their knees at that level of intensity, then you have an inappropriate level of intensity. You know, it basically is that, to me, is that, is that simple. You know what it's supposed to look like? Just make it look that way, you know? And I tell young coaches all the time, sometimes the answer is not to coach differently. It's just to coach harder. You know, coach, I told him to do this, and it's still not better. Well, then say it louder next time, you know, or act like you're angry next time. Sometimes that's the answer. It doesn't necessarily have to be. You know, in conditioning, there's always a, it seems that there's kind of a, this thing where the person who has the most complex, convoluted teaching progression is the winner, like you're a genius. 
you know, like I, I talked to coaches who, well, we do this type of squat, then that type of squat, then that type of squat. And then finally, after three months, they'll put a bar on their back. Well, I kind of put the bar on their back the first day and just well, let them squat. And if they don't do it right, I change them, you know? So I, I don't think you have to have these real deep, dark, convoluted progressions and so forth. Is Or can you actually coach? You know, I tell young coaches all the time, you know, if they haven't changed, you haven't coached. You know, and, and the P word, you know, pressure is kind of a nasty word in some societies these days and in some circles these days. But ultimately, that's what coaching is. Coaching is very simply about applying subtle pressure to athletes in order to foster changes. And if they haven't changed, you haven't coached. Yeah, makes sense to me. Otherwise, you're just being uh, ineffective and, and just supervising, if nothing else. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh, so let's, if you don't mind, I, I want to talk about uh, the field athletes, uh, hammer throw, discus, shot put. And there was a very short couple of years where I was coaching those at the high school level too, went through U.S. track and field. And, and uh, of course, I, th I think we're in the same generation here, Boo, so we don't have to date ourselves, but uh, this was back in the 90s and so on. And uh, I had a blast. I learned so much from, from the athletes themselves, the, the, the events. What are the, the main, like the, the bedrock, the, the big boulders that you train and coach when it comes to throwing athletes? Well, I always... With, with maybe this is politically incorrect term, but I always look at throwers as fast sprinters, meaning meaning that the, uh, the, the, the speed, the power, the explosiveness that you want to develop ultimately is what you want in those throwers as well. So what I've always done is I've always trained them with the same philosophical approach that I would train a sprinter or a jumper or a hurdler or any other, or a basketball player or anybody else who has a skinny body, who has a small body, you know, you're just doing it with different people. And the individualization to me comes in terms, not so much of event, but comes more in terms of body type. So in short, what I'm looking at with them is, you know, typically they're bigger people, so they're not built to sprint, they're built to lift. So basically, same philosophy, the only difference is they lift more, you know, they sprint less. Uh, the plyometrics, sometimes you have to dumb down to a less intense level, depending on the type of body types you're working with, whatever. But I really genuinely try to train them uh, as far as their physical development with the same philosophy that I apply to those other speed power types of athletes, in short. You know, and that's, that's it in a nutshell. So the first really high-level thrower I ever had, she ended up throwing like 185 in the discus and, you know, scored real high at NCAA meet or whatever. I, she was the only thrower I had, and I didn't even write a workout for her. She took the jumps workout, and I'd go over the jump workout with her, and I'd say, I want you to add two sets here in the weight room. I want you to add two sets of this in the weight room. I want you to, look, you're not going to go run the 40s. You're only going to run the 20s, you know, and, and that's kind of how I coached her, to be honest with you. So I don't think it has to be radically different in that respect. Now, the rotational components that we talked about earlier means they have lots and lots of experience at rotational skill building activities, you know. So the technical side and the skill side, of course, is radically different. And the fact that they're in an acyclic sport as opposed to a cyclic sport means that you have to look at that a little differently as well. But philosophically, the main building blocks, 
if you're speed power, you're good. You know, like when, if you come to me and you're a football player, basketball player, volleyball player, track and field athlete, who's not a distance runner, any of those people, your, your training is not going to, 70% of your training, 70% is going to pretty much be consistent there. Yeah. Oh. Okay, you've you've mentioned this is more of a personal question, I guess. You've we've we've mentioned high school level coaching, and some of my previous guests that are in that are coaches in the NFL and 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 other major league sports, they in some ways they they yearn for the days of when they were a high school coach. Do you do you feel the same way? I enjoyed it. I really did. I like being around the kids. I like being in school during the daytime. I like talking to the kids in the hallways, but that's kind of how I am. You know, that's just part of my personality as well. You know, I just like being involved uh, to some extent, but I enjoyed it. You know, uh, the fact that you have young kids and clean slates and things of that nature. It's interesting when I went to become a collegiate coach in track and field, um, track and field is the only sport I've ever really coached collegiately in the NCAA, at the NCAA level or in the NCAA system was that my favorite people ask me, what's your favorite event to coach triple jump? Well, they ask, they think triple jump because I coached a whole bunch of national champions in that event. No decathlon because athlete comes to you and has never done probably two thirds of the events and you had to teach them from scratch, you know? So I've got a chance to teach people from scratch and have that raw slate, you know, that blank slate and be a high school coach again. So that was always very enjoyable for me, you know? Well, that, that carries over into the Perform Better Summits that are coming up this summer here. You'll be in Providence, Rhode Island in August as one of the presenters. And, and we've got in the audience a lot of young coaches, young trainers. So it's, it's, it's another, it's just a similar world with a, a similar audience, I'd say. Do you, do you enjoy presenting and, and what will you be presenting on? Uh, my topic there is a rehab-based topic. Uh, the, the, the lecture I'm going to do is on uh, basic principles of rehab, basically how it, you as a coach, you know, maybe you're not a rehab specialist, but how you as a coach can actually effectively plan return to play training. You know, I believe that every good coach who understands the basic principles of training theory and applies them in their daily work is well-equipped to plan return to play training. Uh, you just got to kind of have to understand a few basic principles and apply them. And that's what it'll all be about. And then the learn by doing component there is going to be a little bit more about ACL base, like some of the very specific things I do for knee rehabs and things of that nature to bring those athletes along a little bit quicker. Well, I look forward to seeing that. If I can make it to Providence, I'll be uh, taking out to lunch or something because this has been a great conversation. I really enjoy the time that you've, you've sacrificed or devoted to this and uh, appreciate it. And of course, uh, I will put some contact information down there, but if there's if there are some aspiring trainers and coaches or, or athletes for that matter that want to find out a little bit more about your coaching techniques or, or anything like that, where, where would you send them? I have a website, uh, sacspeed.com, sacspeed.com. It's a uh, uh, SAC is Sheck Snyder Athletic Consulting, which is a the LLC that I have is that I do my consulting work with. And there's a bunch of researching re, uh, articles and research and things like that. They can pull off of that website and so forth. So if you want to learn a little bit more about me, you can either Google me or go to that website. 
And um, you can even email me directly. You know, I, I take mentorship very seriously. Like I said, I was very lucky at a young age that people kind of took me under their wing and spent time with me. So if I can ever help anybody with any kind of problems that you may have, I welcome them to contact me. I really don't mind. Fantastic. Well, Boo, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate your time. Oh, it's been a blast. I always enjoy these things because not only am I helping the people who are listening, but uh, it always sharpens me up too. you know, to have to organize things in your mind. Uh, you know, when people quiz you like that, it, it, uh, it organizes it in your mind. And my athletes have a better experience because I do things like this. Right on. And that's it for another episode of the Zealous Podcast. I want to thank Boo for coming on and sharing all he did. I really had a great time listening and chatting with him. I hope you had a good time tuning in as well. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and subscribe to the podcast. While you're at it, go ahead, check my website out. It's rockysnyder.com. And so while you're at it, you can even check out the latest copy of my book, Return to Center. And we'll see you next week.